You can grab your Bible and turn to Esther. Uh, Chapter 6 is where we are in our ongoing study through this splendid short story in Scripture. Many people, scholars, have mapped out the structure of Esther, and it's something of a chiasm, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. All you need to know is that the very center point of Esther, its ten chapters, comes actually here in chapter 6 tonight. So perhaps you might, children and students, as I read the passage, have an idea as to why this precisely is the center of the story. So let me read our 14 verses for us and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So here now, once again, as God speaks to you through his word. And on that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Big Fauna and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had Prepared. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we do thank you that your providence is always working out everything for the good of your people, for the glory of your great name. Lord, we want to know something of your hand of hidden providence once again as we turn to this story that reveals so much of the details that you're always working that we don't always know you're doing. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to follow. Help my mouth to preach as you say I must. Let's listen as dying people and let me preach as a dying man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
It's probably the most famous scene in all the Chronicles of Narnia, for those who know it and have read the books, perhaps seen the few movies that have been made. It's when the great Lion King Aslan dies. His body is there on a stone table. He died in the place of a traitorous young boy named Edmund, willingly and sacrificially laying down his life. And he was killed that night by the hand of his villainous enemy, the infamous White Witch. And sometime that night, Edmund's sisters, Susan and Lucy, they had made their way to the stone table. They had observed the actual death of the Lion King. And later on that night and early the next morning, they were nearby the stone table. As they were talking amongst themselves, at one point they turned around to look off at a castle in the distance. And they heard this gigantic crack, this deafening, ear-splitting crack. And they turned around and noticed that the stone table had cracked. But Aslan was no longer on top of it. And then Lucy, the younger of the two, says something to the effect of, maybe this was more magic. And this low, regal, rumbling voice behind them says, oh yes it was. It was deep magic. And they turn around and there is a resurrected Lion King, Aslan, who goes on to say that he came back to life because of a deeper magic, a magic deeper than even the White Witch knew about, a magic that brought about what we could call a a redemptive reversal. And what we find throughout Scripture, if you have eyes to see and reading through God's Word, you'll see it more than you would potentially realize Over and over, God is reversing things for the good of his people and the glory of his great name. And in microcosm, the story of Esther is nothing more than just a redemptive reversal, a deeper, more powerful providence guiding all events and circumstances to bring about a stunning turn of events. It's why one scholar says even of our chapter tonight, this was certainly an unexpected turn of events, meaning Mordecai's rise, but it was only the beginning of of an even greater reversal. So that's what we want to see together tonight. Mordecai's rise, which is nothing more than this great reversal that will take place all the way to the end of chapter 10, the end of this wonderful book. And so kids, as you're reading through Esther, as we're studying it together, what you want to recognize is that God is giving you children scene after scene, story after story, picture after picture of how even in surprising ways, subtle ways, hidden ways. God is always powerfully working out his providence in the life of his people. And in God's providence, he often works that out not just powerfully, but invisibly, that he might do good to his people, that he might complete his promises and perfect his purposes. And so parents, it's a wonderful way, isn't it, even as you talk with your children, those of you in the room that encourage one another, perhaps in your own walk in the Christian life as well, as you study Esther together, to consider the ways in which the book is causing you to ask questions like, how will I respond when God seems silent in my life? When everything seems stacked against me and God doesn't seem to answer or have any interest in responding to my petitions, what will I do? Will I be able to trust him, wait on him, be patient towards his providence? Will I find bitterness, perhaps even anger, doubt and despair growing in my heart? So we want to notice Mordecai's rise tonight in chapter 6. And we're going to notice it in three parts. We basically get three speeches from the king that punctuate the story before us. And so I've got three simple words to guide our study together tonight. First word is discovery, secondly, inquiry, 
And finally, irony. So the king's discovery begins, verse 1 through 3, when we find that the king is sleepless in Susa. Notice again verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. So students, what is that night of which the text speaks? Do you remember where we left off last week? It was in chapter 5 that Esther was preparing the enemy of God's people, Haman the Agagite. He was planning as Mordecai the Jew, who was Esther's uncle, her adoptive father, he had heard that Mordecai, of course, I'm sorry, that Haman had put together this plan that again eventually became a public decree for the annihilation of the Jews. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something about this. All of your people will be wiped out if you don't intervene. So we saw Esther doing what she was preparing to intervene by first calling a banquet. And she only invited the king and, and Haman to come to this banquet, and by the end, the king is basically saying, ask of me whatever you want. I'll give it up to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And she says, well, why don't you just come back tomorrow to yet another banquet, you and Haman, and then I'll make the requests that you want me to ask of you. So she, at the close of chapter 5, is preparing for this banquet the next day. Haman, having been the only invited person along with the king to the queen's first banquet, he went home in a festive mood, the text tells us. But his festive mood, his joyful exuberance over his VIP status there in Persia, it suddenly evaporated when he saw Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the city gate. Remember we talked about Mordecai was just keeping calm. He was carrying on, no bowing before Haman, no acknowledgement even of this Persian prince's presence and so his festive joy and quickly turned to wrath and so he gets home and tells his friends tells his family tells his wife look at all this prosperity look at all this power that i have and all of it is utterly meaningless as long as mordecai the jew is breathing so his counselors and comforters if you glance back to chapter 5 verse 14 say here's what you should do haman let a gallows 50 high 50 cubits high be made And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. So as Esther is preparing for a next day's banquet, Haman and his crony men are preparing a 75-foot-high stake erected outside of the palace upon which Mordecai is meant to die. And there inside the palace, the king can't sleep. And so you'll see at the end of verse 1, He calls for what some scholars have commented on as being an ancient sleeping pill. He gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Surely this wasn't something that was meant to keep him awake. Maybe it was just the rote recitation of all the king's deeds that was meant to lull him back into a slumber. But as God would have it, you'll see that they eventually begin to recount these memorable deeds and they come across one that involved this man named Mordecai. We studied the story at the end of chapter 2 where Mordecai had uncovered this assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. He had warned the king and these men thus were executed. The king was saved. And you'll notice the natural question in verse 3 that the king gives, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Certainly at this time in the ancient Eastern culture, it would have been the expectation of someone saved the king's life. There would have been some noticeable degree of honor. There would have been some palpably present understanding of of his prominence, this man that saved 
the king. But you'll see the young men respond in verse 3. Nothing has been done for him. Actually, if you know the story, years have passed. Nothing has been done. Mordecai has evidently forgotten the man that saved the king's life. And some of you may have been in situations before where you know the experience of Mordecai. You have perhaps saved a, a friend's career. You've saved someone's reputation. Your loyalty has meant the salvation of their provision. And yet it seems as though they've forgotten all about you. There's been a good deed that's been done. Nothing has been mentioned related to it. It seems to be altogether forgotten. And what you need to know in the Christian life, of course, is God and Jesus Christ never forgets the good works that his people perform. Doesn't the New Testament tell us over and over and over that God will reward the works of his people as they're done in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the ways in which God tends to respond to those good works are perhaps more surprising than many of us realize. Certainly more, more unexpected than we would tend to think. Which is why we move from the king's discovery to the king's inquiry. Look at verse 4. The king said, who is in the court? Now sometimes when you read Old Testament narrative in particular, you should keep your ears and your spiritual eyes attuned for these subtle phrases about God's providential ruling. Subtle phrases like what comes next. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Sometimes you get these phrases, particularly in the Hebrew, where it almost has this modern contemporary connotation of, well, looky here. <laughs> Haman just happened to be in the building. Now, it might strike you as unique there in the middle of the night. What's Haman doing inside the palace? The plan was the next morning he was going to wake up. It was going to be the next day that he was going to come into the palace and ask for Mordecai's head on a stick. But it seems as though Haman was so eager for vengeance against his enemy Mordecai the Jew that he couldn't even sleep. That he walked over to the palace at the first sign of the king being awake. He was going to ask for Mordecai's execution. And so, of course, the king is told in verse 5, Haman is there and he says, well, bring him on in. And he asks what appears to be an ambiguous and vague question in verse 6. Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman, if you have noticed along the way, he's completely self-interested. Full of self-indulgence, arrogance, pride. Fills up Haman's heart just as hot air would fill a balloon. And at this moment, he says within his heart, well, who else would he be talking about than me? I mean, after all, I'm a prince in Persia. Didn't the king say that people had to bow before me when they saw me walking through the city? Wasn't it only me, along with the king, that was invited to the queen's VIP banquet just yesterday? What do I want from the king? Well, look what he wants, verse 7 through 9, his advice for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man that the king delights to honor. So kids, do you see what Haman really wants? He wants the king's robes, which in that context were understood to have almost magical, mysterious power. He wants the king's crown. He wants the king's horse. He wants to be led through the city by the king's noblest of officials. What does Haman really want? He wants to be king. It's a not-so-subtle step in the direction towards perhaps his own plan to take the kingship for himself. And yet we get to the end, verse 10 and following, moving from the king's discovery and the king's inquiry to now the king's irony. You know, there are times in life, aren't there, when you have surprising announcements that seem to punctuate the week or perhaps even punctuate the day. You know, you have a child that comes home from school. You'll never believe what someone said to me today in school. Or Can you believe that this just happened? Or perhaps other times is, can you believe he got the promotion? Can you believe she chose him? I mean, why would that team draft that player in the NFL draft of months past? But it's true that nothing could really be put into words to describe the utter astonishment and amazement that Haman must have felt when the king answers his advice by saying this, notice verse 10, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so. And you would think Haman's chest is puffing up, smiles beginning to rise on his lips. Surely he's the one that the king delights to honor And as quickly as that rose, it's dashed utterly to the ground. And he says, do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. It's Haman's most hated enemy that gets the exaltation. It's Haman's most hated foe that gets the king's honor. And to add insult to his already injured pride, you'll see in verse 11, it's Haman, who's the king's noble official, that's made to lead Mordecai through the city, proclaiming as he goes, thus shall it be done to the men the king delights to honor. If you were in exile at this time in the original audience hearing this story, you probably would have laughed out loud. Such is the power of God's providence in the life of this sinful person that wanted to oppose God's people. God is in every way comedically making a mockery of those enemies that would dare to destroy his promised people. Thus, notice verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. For how could he return home with anything but utter shame and embarrassment? A great reversal is already taking place in Mordecai's life. It's going to come to full fruition by the end of the book, just three and a half chapters on. I don't know about you, those of you that are older, as you reflect back on your schooling life of years or perhaps decades past, and I do this occasionally and remember those classes that I enjoyed and those that I didn't enjoy so much. And, uh, the one that particularly was on the distaste list of my life growing up was anything related to science. I don't know why the Lord made me that way, but it was anything related to science when it was on the school calendar caused me great despair and even discouragement. And I remember one day being in a middle school science class, uh, somewhat used to going into this lab and having to do dissections that just really 
didn't click with the way in which I interact with God's creation. <laughs> and well, th- that day, we had, a, we had a lab experiment, but it was related to a local police officer that had come into our classroom. And he was doing something of a show and tell with his forensic science techniques. And my lab partner and I that day, the first experiment that we got to perform was just dusting for fingerprints, which isn't revolutionary for those of you that have seen it or perhaps done it. Nevertheless, if you haven't seen it or done it, it can be kind of fascinating to place your finger on something of the table in front of you and you don't see anything and then you take the dust and you spread it over the table and you begin to brush it all away and suddenly there before your eyes revealed something that was just momentarily before hidden unto you. And in many ways what's happening in Esther chapter 6 is God's hidden fingerprints are now suddenly showing. That from the beginning of the story in ways that weren't fully apparent to all of us, he was working behind the scenes, has been working behind the scenes to guarantee that his good purposes and providence comes to pass in his people's life. And in this story, it's going to be nothing more than a stunning, surprising, redemptive reversal And I want you to see two final things as we begin to close from this first sense of God's reversing power. I want you to notice, first of all, how it calls us to cherish God's protection. Cherish God's protection. We don't know precisely how long, how many months had passed since that first edict of the Jews' annihilation was decreed to this moment in time. No doubt in Mordecai's mind as he would have heard about it. No doubt in Esther's mind as she would have heard about it. Whatever time period elapsed, it was a wonder. How is it that God's going to save us now? Are there times, perhaps even in your life, where it seems as though God's promise is on a perilous position, soon ready to collapse? It seems as though everything is arrayed against God's promise that he has made towards you, that he could never actually bring it to fulfillment now. Perhaps even there are times in which it appears as though it's already collapsed and been conquered. But what Esther is helping you understand is that however bleak, however dark that picture may be, when it comes to God's promises, they can never be extinguished. He's always in surprising, ever so subtle and secretive ways, guaranteeing that his promises will come to pass in his people's life. He will protect them from start to finish. And what you want to see is not just God's protection, you also want to cherish God's provision. Number two, finally, cherish God's provision. We don't have any sense in the course of the previous chapters that Mordecai was there in his clothes, in his seated position, asking for this kind of exaltation in a public way. Actually, what you even notice in verse 11 is a stunning reversal of sorts because the last time that Mordecai's clothing was mentioned, he was in dust and ashes and now he's wearing the king's robes. The last time his posture was mentioned, he was seated and could not get up. But now he's risen to the high horse of the king. God was always working to provide for his servant in the most surprising of ways. In the most unstoppable of ways is God's provision and protection so that even a pagan wife of Haman, a woman named Zeresh, can say, notice verse 13, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall. Such is the reality of God's protection and provision for his people. 
such as the reality of his unstoppable power in his promise. When God begins to move, anyone who stands against him will begin to fall. He's always in the business, isn't he, about reversing the courses of his people's fortunes, taking the bad and turning it into good, taking the poor and turning it into riches, taking the needy and turning it into fullness. That wasn't the greatest redemptive reversal that history has ever seen. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, coming to take the form of a servant, dying on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me, being buried in the tomb, and for three days the forces of evil, no doubt, were singing a song of triumph. But then three days later, he bursts forth from the grave, God's power in his life, resurrecting his Son for our justification, and then rising weeks later to the Father's right hand in heaven, now ruling and reigning, always working out his purposes and providences in your life. For it's God through Jesus Christ that protects his promise. It's God through Jesus Christ that provides for his people. It's God through Jesus Christ that reverses all of the sad things that they might become untrue in his son. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would give us patience in the midst of whatever our circumstance is, watching and waiting, looking for your good kindness to come once again into our lives, to give us steadfastness as we wait, continue faithfulness and trust in your security, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.